Welcome to Turning Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. We've got two interviews for you this month, so I won't waste any time with introductions and we can just get straight into it. Before we get started, this podcast is still entirely voluntary and we're trying to turn it into a professional or even a semi-professional endeavour. So if you can afford to support it, please go to patreon.com forward slash turning earth and subscribe. The first interview is with Johnny McElligot of the Safety Before LNG campaign, which recently won an important victory against the proposed liquefied natural gas platform in County Kerry. If none of that makes any sense to you, listen on and Johnny will explain why it matters. Well, I've been involved in the fight against Shannon and LNG since about 2007, um, going back to the early days after um, it was first announced in the Dáil in 2006, believe it or not. So I've been at it a long time. And I suppose the real main reason at the beginning was that it was proposed to be built um, in Kilcolligan in County Kerry, outside in Tarperton County Kerry. And it was for um, on a construction on a local land bank, which had been brought together by the IDA and Shannon Development. And it was actually the home farm of my grandmother, Nora O'Connor. And that's how I got interested in it. I thought it was a great idea at the beginning. You know, the brochure came around that it was a beautiful site and it just looked like lovely ships pulling up against the land bank, as we called it, and um, that it would deliver some jobs to the area. So I thought it was all very positive until I was speaking to people that had been in Milford Haven in Wales and they started highlighting all the safety issues. But generally it was from a safety perspective and the idea that that it would sterilise the entire estuary was really where it started off of and that it would pollute dramatically. Locally, very important maybe, but nationally negligible. So, um, So in the beginning I was for it, I thought it was great. And as I started asking questions, the answers just weren't satisfactory. I'd like to ask for some more details on how the campaign got started. But first, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, can you describe what LNG is? LNG actually stands for liquefied natural gas. And it is methane or gas, natural gas, that is cooled to a temperature cold enough uh, to become a liquid. And that means the you can transport 600 times more on a ship with the same volume. I suppose safety before LNG started off when Shannon LNG actually submitted the planning application for fast track planning in 2007. A lot of the locals started getting worried after a few of the uh, presentations by the company just didn't sound right. And that's where we all, it was kind of, it, it came together pretty quickly really that we had to decide what we were going to do and how we were going to react to it. Can you talk a bit more about that? How did you start to notice that something wasn't right? And then maybe you could talk about what the local pollution concerns were and what the implications were nationally and internationally in terms of carbon emissions. Well, what made us suspicious initially was when Shannon LNG stated that LNG, if there was a spill, it would evaporate quickly. But liquefied natural gas because it's a liquid uh, that was super cooled to make the gas into a liquid, it's actually heavier than air. And if there's a release or a spill of LNG, it will not evaporate quickly, but it can travel uh, several miles and be still ignitable. 
So it could travel, uh, I think, up to 12 kilometers and be still ignitable. And when you're on estuary waters, that poses a huge risk to a much larger area. So that's what made us suspicious in the beginning. Now, um, the idea then, the pollution risks locally were that um, they were going to use a kind of a heat exchanger mechanism to heat the gas. It would use the waters of the Shannon Estuary. It only had to go to four degrees, the liquid, to be um, converted back into a gas. And the average temperature of the Shannon Estuary is about seven or eight degrees. So you'd have 100 million gallons of water being used per day to reheat the, ga- the, the, the LNG. And, but the problem is that would go out about 11 degrees cooler than it came in and it would kill all the microorganisms. So that would have a big impact locally. You're asking then about the car- the implications for international carbon emissions. In the beginning, that wasn't the same concern as it is now because the science has moved on and we've learned a lot more. So now we know that with methane, it is the low-lying fruit in reducing carbon emissions uh, or greenhouse gas emissions. They think that it can account for up to, if we can manage to reduce man-made sources of methane emissions, that is gas that does not get burned, that goes into the atmosphere, as happens with fracking, that you could reduce global climate, um, global warming about, by about half a degree Celsius. This is an amazing quick fix, the low-lying fruit and the tree. That is the huge implication, really. And then the real issue is that where is all the methane coming from? And we have learned uh, that one third of the increase in global methane emissions worldwide from man-made sources is actually coming from fracking in America. So that is why fracking is the world's largest super emitter uh, of methane caused by man. The campaign recently had an important milestone, a great victory in that the, the project was refused planning permission and it was refused on the basis that it contradicted government policy, which as far as I understand is pretty significant because normally these, when these things are refused, if they are, it's usually on a technicality which can be fixed and then revisited. I want to ask you more about that in a minute, but first could you talk about some of the previous milestones in the campaign? Um, to be quite honest, I think the biggest milestone that we achieved in the beginning was actually making an objection. To the, to the planning application in such a short period of time. Really what I'm trying to say there is that, you know, we were in a local area where Tabard Power Station, it's an oil-fired power station, and it brought good jobs to the area for many years. So there had always been this idea that anything that was to do with power generation would be good. So we actually broke a taboo by saying, hold on, this is a power generation project, but it is a little bit different. And it can be kind of summed up really in the expression evidence-based decision-making in a transparent manner. And local people who, in the beginning, we knew very little about what was going on and what was the big picture, but we were asking very simple questions and not getting acceptable answers. And... You know, like I said there earlier on, when Shannon LNG did not tell the truth about um, the the distances 
that LNG could travel if there was a leak up to 12 kilometers and be still ignitable. Uh, once you tell something that's not completely uh, factual at an earlier stage, you arouse suspicions. So the big milestone really was that people decided that, hold on, we want to be part of this process. We are stakeholders, to use the modern term now, and we were actually able to put in a submission and our voice started getting heard. And then the other milestone after that was that the Friends of the Irish Environment helped us take on a, a core challenge to the planning permission that Channel LNG managed to get at the early stages. Now, you might think was losing in the High Court uh, a milestone. Yes, it was a milestone, but it also showed that we were able to put it up to a large multinational uh, fossil fuel company that looked like they were invincible. But what we did notice was that even at the oral hearings, uh, the, the many days of oral hearings, I think there was eight days of an oral hearing um, at the early stages in 2007 or 2008 uh, into the Channel LNG planning application. People were asking really good questions and um, they were well able to push it up to the company. And you could see that they were frustrated by even having to be challenged on those questions. I remember at the time there was you might have 15 or 16 people on the Shannon LNG side and one or two people asking questions on the local side. And they were kind of under pressure even to be able to answer all those questions. And that gave people confidence. Now, I know they got planning permission in the end, but we had learned how to say that this is our piece of area. We're interested in the implications of what's going on here. And we're not going to be fobbed off by people that had been lobbied very strongly at the beginning, the um, the opinion farmers, I think you call them, at the beginning of the process. And we realized that we could keep asking questions. And now, two weeks after Shannon LNG lost permission for the LNG terminal and power station, we learned that they've gone back to Cary County Council requesting a pre-application meeting to apply for permission for uh, grid connection and the construction of electricity substations. But they lost the permission for the standalone power station as well. So Kelly County Council will have to refuse them because just because they got a grid connection from the regulator a few months ago, they only got that on, on the understanding that they would build an, a, a, a power station even if they didn't build an LNG terminal. But the Borpanala ruled, ruled very clearly that the power station as a standalone project was against all the strategic planning of the Shannon Estuary, which has set aside that land for marine-related facilities, not for standalone power stations. So that's the kind of situation we're dealing with. And I think, you know, at this stage, we're going to have to start looking at how Shannon LNG was allowed to give 27 million euros to um, uh, government bodies, Kerry County Council and Shannon Group, uh, when uh, for at least um, 27 million euros that they gave, that it was against government policy to proceed with or allow LNG terminals to be constructed. This is very serious. Can you tell us about the company behind Shannon LNG? Um, the company behind Shannon LNG is a, a US company called New Fortress Energy. New Fortress Energy is mainly owned by Wes Edens. Now, all I can tell you about him is that 
he's called the the king of US subprime lending. He's made his money from lending small sums of money at large interest rates. Therefore, it's called subprime. Um, he's made his money, but he's a businessman. More power to him. Whatever he's interested in, that's fine. But it's just a money. It's a money project for him. He's only just seeing the bottom dollar or the bottom euro. That's all. He doesn't care about Ireland. He doesn't care about the impacts it's having locally, nationally and internationally. It's not their game. Their game is just making money. That's fine. But it cannot be the only criteria in which any project gets completed or gets planning permission. Mainstream media reporting has presented the decision as being very divisive socially and politically. Uh, Local people have been quoted saying that it was the last chance for the site. And we're also seeing the old argument that gas is a transition fuel and uh, we need it. Um, So can you comment on those arguments? I don't think that that, um, the decision against Shannon Energy has been that divisive, really, locally or nationally. It's the same few people that are saying that it's caused huge unrest, but um, I haven't seen it on the ground. I know that there are a few parties, um, independents saying that, and when one politician locally says something, it's very difficult for the others to go against them because they're all afraid that they would be the only one singing, not singing off the same hymn sheet. But um, the real problem for the Shannon LNG project was that it was stopping a proper development of the Shannon Estuary because it was going to create a proprietary jetty at the mouth of the estuary, which could interfere with shipping in the estuary and uh, the development of a renewable energy uh, industry in the estuary, which the new task force that was set up to compensate uh, for not having any more fossil fuel infrastructure on the estuary. Uh, it was set up specifically for that for that purpose, as agreed for in the programme for government. And that is focusing all on the renewable energy in the estuary. So uh, I think it's not, the, it's not the last chance for the Shannon estuary. It's actually the clean slate that we needed. If there is some genuine local support for it, what would you say is the source of that local support? I think um, the real source of the local support that was for the project came from the company itself because the company produced beautiful brochures, very strong um, emphasis put on the marketing of the project. And so it was an easy thing for local politicians to repeat about how great this project was going to be. They sounded intelligent. They sounded like they know what they were doing. And all they had to do was do a little bit of pushing here and there, and they sounded like they were doing great work for the area. When in actual fact, they were blocking anything else from going ahead. They never had any other ideas over the last 16 years for any other project that could go ahead in the area. They basically uh, didn't have to do much. It's almost like a sports pundit sitting at a bar stool talking away about a football match. They were able to talk about how great this was going to be but they didn't actually do anything positive or look at any alternatives for the estuary. That's where Shannon LNG got its real support. They built up expectation that this was going to be a, bring a boom. It didn't have to be true, but it just sounded so good. And that's what got them the support. Uh, Sean Kelly, MEP of Fine Gael, and uh, the mayor of Kerry, who is uh, Fine Gael as well, I believe, both brought up the question of energy independence. 
They claim that this project would be a positive for Ireland's energy independence. Now, that's obviously false, since it would simply shift the source of our dependence from one country to another. Uh, can you respond to that argument? Um, the real problem with the energy independence argument is that um, some people that support bringing in more gas, even if it's from a different source, you're still bringing in more gas. That's not making us more energy independent. It's making us more reliable on the, on the international gas market. That's very volatile, especially the LNG market. Now, the real idea people are now getting their heads around about around is the fact that it's not gas supply that we have a problem with at the moment in Ireland. It's electricity demand is increasing constantly with the data centers, which is using, I think, currently about 14% of Ireland's electricity is being used uh, to power data centers, and that's expected to rise to about 30% in the next um, seven or eight years. So it's how are you going to power those power stations for the increasing demand caused by the data centers, for instance. So like, I think there's one big problem is that we can't be expanding the gas network. It's I think the emphasis has to be in how do you power the power stations and you have to try and reduce demand until the renewable sector or a more uh, diverse source of energy appears before you increase the electricity demand. Uh, the government, Fine Gael in particular, have made some noise but not given up on the project. Given that, what is next for safety before LNG? I think... Um, uh, there is another part to the government policy in, on the importation of frac gas, and it is that the government would work internationally towards the phasing out of fracking at an international level. And we would like now to see the government working to propose uh, a global ban on fracking being introduced at the United Nations uh, General Assembly, as that would open up the world to actually discussing the impacts of fracking at a global level. Thanks very much, Johnny. Have you got any final words to leave us with? Finally, I really would like to thank everybody that was involved in all aspects of the campaign against Chanel NG from a local, national and international level. I know if I start naming them out, I'm going to forget some of them. So I'm naming none, <laughs> I'm naming none of them. But it was a cross-section of society. It was uh, uh, from the youth to the all the NGOs to the um, politicians, from the thousands of submissions, from the motions in at different levels of government, um, from the climate camp that there was held in Bally Longford uh, last year, everything. I mean, so many people did so many things that it's now no longer a local issue, it's an international issue. And just to say a big thanks to everybody. And you know, what we really want is to get our land back because that land was amassed since the 1950s, first of all, by the IDA, and then it later became, um, it came under the auspices of Shannon Development, who did nothing to propose anything positive for the area. And then it was, uh, came under the auspices of Shannon Group. But a lot of people, there was a lot of sadness when that land was bought. And the idea now that it could be just sold to Shannon LNG in the middle of a planning process, when it was given against government policy to actually s help any company trying to build an LNG terminal there, 
that's really serious. And I think there's only one logical conclusion we're going to get is that the land is going to go back into public ownership. That closing statement from Johnny takes us perfectly into the next interview, which is with two members of the Revolutionary Housing League, whose stated aim is to take empty properties which are being hoarded and put them to public use. We're tight for time, so I'll let their interview speak for itself. But just to note, there were some issues with my mic, so the audio quality is a bit patchy. I'm down here now at the shopfronts, aka that social centre. You'll find information about it on Instagram under that social centre. And this is a squatted social centre in Pillsborough. The people who have occupied the building are not, there's no one particular organisation, it's like an unaffiliated group of squatters um, who have taken the building to use it for, uh, to get it back into public use, to use it for cultural events. It's a strip of shops in Fibsborough that's been sitting empty for several years and developers just sitting on it, letting it rot. And I'm here to interview some comrades from the RHL um, members of the Revolutionary Housing League are here at the moment uh, painting banners for the cost of living demo on Saturday. Um, so I'm going to catch up now with a couple of people from the group um, to give basically an introduction to the organisation, talk about how it started. It's important to mention that uh, this building is not one that was acquired by the RHL. They're just using the place. The, the building is it's a available to community groups, to activist groups for use if people need it for meetings or to run events or anything like that. You can contact that social centre on Instagram um, if you want to do that, if you're a member of an organisation that wants to use it. Um, so like I said, the comrades from the RHL are here this evening uh, painting banners and I'm going to catch up with a couple of them now. So I guess we'll just start with you. How, how long has the was the RHL operating and how did it get started in the first place? It, it started off in May of uh, last year. Uh, so it started off with the Revolutionary Workers Union, which is a socialist Republican uh, union. Uh, but the idea was to take over a building in the city centre that would be uh, a major statement in terms of fighting the housing crisis. Uh, so we took James Connolly House on the 1st of May, you know, International Workers' Day. And so Connolly House was the beginning and it was only actually after Connolly House that the Revolutionary Housing League was formally formed. Uh, in June of last year. Okay, and how did, uh, can you talk a bit about James Connolly House then, how did that situation play out, and how did you, what, what brought you to that building in the first place, why did you choose that building as the one? So we, we had actually been told by people that we know in various, like in the housing sector, the homeless sector, and people who had actually worked in the building before, that this was a fully kitted out building, it had belonged to the Salvation Army before, uh, and it had been a youth hostel for homeless youth. So this place had been abandoned for two or three years at that point. Um, we thought it was an absolute disgrace that in the middle of the housing crisis they would allow this place to actually be empty at the time. And even despite the fact that, you know, especially with the youth, the most vulnerable people, uh, they had just basically turfed them out one day and sent them somewhere else. And the place was completely kitted out. When we actually came in, it was there as electricity, there was water, there was everything. And it, it was everything that people had told us it was, uh, that it was a perfectly suitable building. And five stories as well, really large could potentially have housed people, many people if uh, it got off the ground and things like this. Even as well that uh, it, it, it was managed, you know, it was left in trust to the Salvation Army and that with the explicit function of staying open on, to house people in housing need, as long as there was homelessness, essentially this building was supposed to stay open and, you know, leaving it like there was a few rooms that were condemned, but, you know, you get the sense after that it's like, you know, we kind of put it together that, um, they just wanted to let it fall into disrepair so they could have a site afterwards. Another key factor was that actually in the basement there was an industrial kitchen. 
Uh, so there was an industrial kitchen that we thought soup kitchens would be able to use. It's only just really close to the sea center. You know, it's just around the corner from the GPO where the majority of the soup kitchens actually are. So that was another goal of ours, but the soup kitchens could come in, use the uh, industrial kitchen downstairs uh, to provide food for the homeless directly. Yeah, I remember going to a good few events out and it seemed like it was just starting to get off the ground, but it never quite got to the stage of being able to house people, did it? Uh, no, we, we mostly kept it as a political protest at the yeah. time. Uh, you know, there was, there was groups that we wanted to get involved uh, who d didn't at the time, so we never got to the stage where we actually used it. As, at certain times we did actually produce food and bring it to the soup kitchens ourselves, but mostly it was a political protest. Uh, you know, we hung banners from the building, uh, we hosted events, educationals, all that sort of stuff within the building, uh, and that was the main focus at the time. But we did actually house people who were in housing difficulty. Uh, there were just people we knew who, um, you know, their rent was coming up or they couldn't find anywhere and so they stayed in the building for most of the time. Uh, there just wasn't people who had actually been rough sleepers, you know, actually living on the streets at the time, you know, that, that would come later. You know, there's always a learning curve of this stuff and particularly with the legal aspect of the whole thing. Yeah. Understanding the injunction process, which is the method by which they actually kick people out uh, through, through the courts. Uh, understanding in terms of like the legalities of actually being in the building and all of this. There, there's always a learning curve of these things as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the Salvation Army actually began their legal proceedings against us very quickly. You know, if it was within the first week or two, uh, they had their court proceedings and they were granted the injunction fairly early on. But, you know, whenever they're granted that initial injunction, it still has to be carried out. There's certain other phases to the injunction. And the final thing is that they need to get a court order to the guards to actually remove people from the building, uh, which is what ultimately happened. And that was a reasonably big eviction, so it wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, they admitted in court uh, uh, that there was 80 guards that they had deployed. You know, the guards themselves actually went on the stand and admitted that 80 guards had been deployed. There was helicopters, uh, a few armed guards were noticed. Uh, there was men with riot shields, all these things. So from the very beginning, they, they wanted to make a big impression, you know, and uh, they weren't leaving anything to chance. And they, they said in the court documents that, you know, they claimed that there was like 50 people in the building, whatever else, uh, based off of all the uh, social media we put out, you know, because from the beginning we were very open about what we were using the building for. Yeah. You know, we all wanted to make it very clear that we were using it as a community space, as a protest, all these things, and to house people. So um, they had a lot of evidence to put in their court book, but that's, that's fine by us, you know, because we don't have anything to hide in terms of what we're using the buildings for. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So that first occupation then you're saying was the Revolutionary Workers' Union, and then I guess a set of goals developed out of that distinct from the union that necessitated starting another group so what were the what was the, that made you realize okay this needs its own thing it has its own momentum and how did the RHL grow out of that oh yeah so there, there was a lot of people who were actually coming and they were asking if they could join and so on and we didn't really have a way for people to join we had volunteers coming in uh, we had a lot of people signing up to help come clean the place to like sort it out to help with banners all this sort of stuff uh, but there wasn't really an organization for them to join specifically for housing things and, you know even when we took when we took the building initially there wasn't a long-term plan in terms of taking over buildings around Dublin and all this and creating a housing organization that came after when we saw that there was a lot of interest there's a lot of people who wanted to get involved including my uh, my colleague here today um, so you know there was there it, it developed quite organically out of uh, the action that we had you know and you know the second building we took we actually took uh, while we were in the first one once the injunction process was fairly far along so that we would have a backup and all this so around then is when we really started thinking about how we can actually turn this into an organization yeah. and what were the what were the foundational aims of it then the foundational aim was that we wanted we didn't want to uh, negotiate. We didn't want to just be begging the state all the time. You know, that's, that's been a really important aspect of the RHL from the beginning is that a lot of the time demands on the state, they end up just being, you know, please give us housing. 
you know. So taking, taking back empty buildings obviously is a major part of that, but a major part of ethos in particular was just no, no compliance with the state. You know, this, this housing crisis they've created and all the human misery they've created and what they've allowed and all their, their alliances with the landlord to keep the working class in Ireland down. Um, you know, we really wanted to expose that as well. You know, it wasn't just about taking the buildings and providing housing. It was really about making the point of the state and how they protect landlords and how the guards are the enforcers, enforcers of private property, you know. And that's, and that's the thing as well, is that like a lot of protests in Ireland, they don't necessarily come in, into conflict with the state, you know. Yeah. Whereas because the guards are the people who are ultimately assigned to evict people from buildings, you know, uh, especially when they have to enforce the court injunctions, it really exposes that that is the role of the guards, you know, is protect private property in the free state. You know, that is what their 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 aims are, um, and so by taking the buildings, we expose that as well as providing the utility of actually having the building as a space and to provide housing and all this. And that's something that uh, we really think is important, is because a lot of housing campaigning can be very depoliticized in Ireland. You know, there are, like some groups can be very depoliticizing in terms of how they talk about these things, or they think it might be alienating to talk about the role of the state or whatever else. And so that's why we thought it was important uh, to really make that a key part of our work. Yeah, and to kind of enshrine that in, in like the day-to-day -day by just the name of it as well, which is good to mention that we, we refer to them as acquisitions rather than occupations because you know, occupation, um, it kind of acknowledges um, the, the, you know, laws of private property that are there. Whereas, you know, we see this as, you know, a, a, um, you know, justice or for the people kind of thing, you know. So in terms of actually where, you know, where the kind of duties of property are as well, yeah. you know, so that it's uh, just totally not acknowledging the laws that are there. And, and from the very beginning, the RWU actually said that we, we want to encourage other people to take over empty, empty buildings. You know, we don't want it to just be us entirely. We want to encourage others. Because, you know, in every single community, you have these derelict buildings that people can take. And they just don't. Uh, like, or there's a fear, especially like the legal aspect of repercussions, uh, of, you know, slashing social welfare, whatever else it might be. People, or being taken off the housing list, even. People are, can be afraid of that. And, you know, we really want to instill confidence in people in terms of this, you know, this can be done. You can take over buildings, especially if you have community on board and, and an organization behind it. So the idea is that it's not that you're taking something that isn't yours, occupying something that belongs to someone else, but it's that you're moving this building into a different system altogether. It's in a different housing system, a different way of looking at housing and a different way of using it. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, just, and also really just emphasizing that, like, you know, these buildings belong to the people by right, as far as we're concerned. You know, like all, all these empty properties and the natural resources of Ireland and all this, they belong to the people of Ireland. You know, the idea that there's, they, someone can sign a piece of paper and this piece of land or this building is owned by them in perpetuity, uh, especially when it comes to big developers and so on. You know, obviously someone owning their own home is no, that's no problem for us. But um, the idea that these big developers can own these buildings forever uh, without any consequences and leave them derelict without any consequences. I mean, you know, the state brings in these pitiful taxes that they're never actually used. You know, they wouldn't be, even be charged very much if the vacancy taxes were actually deployed, but they aren't even, they don't even bother collecting, yeah. you know? So it really just, um, we really want to just emphasize that as does like this, these buildings should belong to the people by right. It shouldn't just be a case of, you know, that's theirs and that's that. And, you know, you know they can keep an empty building in your community with people on the housing list 15 years and you're all, everyone around is begging for housing and here it is, you know, slapped out in the middle. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it. Too bad, sucker, you know? Yeah, exactly. Even taking into account the kind of illegitimacy of all the, like how uh, property was transacted after, you know, the banks crashed and 
and Nama brought brought up a lot of you know that, that property. I know you're seeing in the news that it's like a developer's brother bought back his property at two point five percent of the price of it. You know, so there's just a tremendous amount of illegitimacy of how so many sites have changed hands and it essentially got back into developers' hands after that. You've kind of started talking about it a bit already, but can you, there's been several occupations since, or what's the word, acquisitions <laughs> since uh, James Connolly House. Can you talk about those? How, how did they play out and how did they differ from, obviously they're all different owners, different uses, so. Yeah, so like the geography, the, like the actual architecture and geography of the building themselves make a lot of difference. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't always know what a building will be useful for until you've actually taken it, because you know, you can never guarantee exactly what it will look like inside and all these things, even with the amount of research that we do. Uh, you know, so like the second place we took, we called Liam Mello's house is in, in Inchicor. It was former council flats that are owned by an approved housing body. And uh, they've been there like, for years. Supposedly they were meant to have, uh, you know, fixed them up and put the elderly in there years ago, and it just hadn't been happening. Um, so that was the second one we took. And after that, you had um, Honor John Hewson, uh, which uh, was on Parkade Street, is a former weaver's factory. Uh, so it was a abandoned factory and warehouse uh, complex, essentially, owned by a billionaire developer, Joe O'Reilly of Chartered Land. And uh, there we actually directly housed homeless people. You know, that was the first time we actually had rough sleepers off the streets staying inside, as well as asylum seekers who had been tossed out by the, by the state onto the streets. Um, you know, so that was our first experiment in terms of actually having uh, rough sleepers and, and trying to deal with those issues. And then the, the, major, the major one after that would have been um, Berkeley Road, uh, you know, on Berkeley Road in February, um, which is the former James McSweeney House, also owned by an approved housing body. Um, and there we actually house mostly asylum seekers and homeless people, uh, particularly ones that have been targeted by the far right on, at the IPO and uh, Sandwich Street. That's, that's, it's interesting because I remember the first, first article that I read, I think, about, not, maybe not the first article, but the first big one about James Connolly House, that they were quick to highlight that the building was supposedly set aside for Ukrainian refugees. Now, not a single Ukrainian refugee has set foot in it. That's there, right, yeah. I'm pretty mm. sure. But uh, it was just, it was not, not long after the invasion started, so I guess it was an easy one for them to be like, that these people are evil. But it, was, it definitely spun it as though the organisation was anti... It was just so cynical, and it shows the kind of slimy tactics that the, the establishment really is willing to use. But um, Yeah, yeah, and even to get in touch with... Uh, what was the name of the, the charity? that um, was kind of there standing, standing by uh, this kind of grievous outrage done to uh, Ukrainian refugees. Oh, I can't remember which one this was. But yeah, but just, just kind of, it gave, it gave an idea of like, um, you know, this is a, this, you know, this is outrageous that, you know, we, we took this building because we have a very, you know, severe temporary crisis at the moment, you know, which is kind of implicating the housing crisis as a permanent crisis, you know, which kind of gave us a, uh, first orientation on how charities deal with, you know, they deal with it as a permanent problem, you know, yeah, yeah. not something that, you know, we have the resources to remedy in the state. Yeah, and, you know, you also get into the issue of state funding, you know, a lot of these bodies are housed, they're funded by, directly by the state. Uh, there's certain things they just can't say. I mean, you can just look at Peter McVeary, you know, whenever he comes out with a political statement, he always says it's in a personal capacity, you know, because he knows that he can't say it on behalf of his charity. <clears throat> and that, that is a recurring issue with the, all these things. But, you know, the refugee thing, that was a very deliberate attempt, in my mind, by the media to, to smear RHL. Well, it was RW at the time, but, you know, to smear the campaign at the very beginning to try to undermine the support from progressive people, you know, uh, a lot of whom are sympathetic and always, you know, have been for, for a very long time. But, um, you know, from the very beginning, there was no evidence that refugees were going to be put into this building. Uh, you know, at no stage 
There was, there was no repairs being done internally. Um, they had made no announcement publicly that this was going to happen. Their evidence they, was basically non-existent. At no point did any journalist actually seem to question the narrative here. And we have actually found over and over and over again with every building we take, everyone always has an excuse as to why a building is empty. You know, whether it's a charity or a landlord, they always have an excuse. They're just about to build something. They're just about to renovate it. They're just about to do this. But the funny thing is that these excuses never actually seem to result in anything being done. And it's just an excuse to keep these places empty for as long as they can, you know, and, and justify this dereliction. In the middle of, you know, we have thousands of people, uh, you know, people dying on our streets and these people are making up these pitiful excuses. And a year, it's been over a year now, you know, I mean, James, uh, James Conley House, was, it's been over a year, I think a year and a half almost at this point, that it was evicted. At no point has a Ukrainian refugee set, set foot in that building. But on top of that, they actually have 24-7 security in the building. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, are paying, they are willing to pay for 24-7 security in that building rather than actually just putting people into the building as ho for housing, you know. And it, it's just really astonishing the amount of resources that groups like the Salvation Army that supposedly charitable organizations will put towards keeping buildings empty. Yeah, you know? yeah I want to ask about McSweeney House in a minute, that's, that's the most recent one. Um, but before that, could you talk a bit about uh, only John Houston and Lee Mellow's house? So how did the... Um, what did you, what, how did you change going through that experience and what was the response from the state like in both those cases? Um, I suppose uh, it was mentioned briefly there about um, how the geography of a building matters. Uh, so for Liam Meadows, um, because it was, you know, um, um, basically it was very compartmentalised. There was no kind of common area. It was all apartments broken up. And that, you know, if you're talking about, you know, barricades and you know, security or you know, it's very difficult to do on top of actually opening all these individual units because they were all had steel uh, panelling, you know, just up over the windows and the doors, you know, so then you might get in and one might be totally uh, uninhabitable. And then also the fact that, you know, as my colleague uh, said before, I think we started recording, we did actually, because of where it was, it was out in Inchicore, we got a great response from people around but it also left us quite uh, unable to kind of mobilize any support uh, in the event of like Garda harassment, uh, which is what did happen, you know, and, you know, the guards were much more comfortable overstepping, you know, in a discretionary way there, you know, essentially what them breaking the law to get us out, you know. So you had them actually come in, you know, they're not supposed to be able to you know, if you're in occupation of the building, that's illegal yeah, in occupation. It's a civil matter, you know, whereas they didn't heed it at all because there was no one around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, they did kick the door down a couple of times within the first few weeks and they did arrest people on, uh, on two occasions um, from Liam Meadows' house, you know. Uh, that's kind of when you see those, the repression from the state uh, increase a bit was, was around that time. And generally speaking, you know, the law is very vague on these things, you know, in terms of what is trespass, what is criminal damage and all this. But generally, they will exploit any excuse to try to get people out of a building, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. And they take advantage of those grey areas to kick people out, even though it should be a civil matter by law. And that's something we saw a lot with Meadows House. But yeah, with Meadows House, Meadows House was sort of more of a stopgap after Connolly House more than anything else. Uh, we did do community events there. We did talk to neighbours. Actually, uh, one of our neighbours, who was a lovely man, actually uh, left us uh, a bottle of wine when we left. You know, he gave us a bottle of wine before we left. So, you know, that we had a good reception from the neighbours and things, but it doesn't make the same political impact, obviously, when you're outside the city centre. One in Sean Houston, as my colleague said, was a large textile mill. So a big, huge complex, uh, right opposite, right in town, uh, just opposite the criminal courts. 
um, and that was our first experience taken in rough sleepers and a lot of we, you know, we had a lot of uh, outreach charities that were kind of um, centralized around it as a, as a point a lot of food being delivered in tents and things like that so we had a situation where it was quite a huge factory floor and people camping there so it was, it was I guess it, if you looked at it comparatively with somewhere that's you know individual rooms it was a lot easier to kind of like mediate kind of what was happening at any given time because everyone had their own tent but they were all essentially under the same roof in the same room so um, but there were, there were a lot of issues there like you know none of us are or the only people involved with charities that are involved with us would be professionally trained and it was there that we actually had our first experiences with you know and um, someone gave first aid courses and things like that um, it was also the first ex experience of um, private security coming and trying to kick us out and so we went to we said we won't name the uh, the company but we went to their headquarters and doorstep them and that worked quite effectively you know they they said they wouldn't be back and they weren't yeah, they, they sent an apology email essentially saying that they were no longer taking the contract and please stop bad mouthing them essentially <laughs> uh you know so like that, that is an important aspect you know the, the direct action aspect is really important of what part of what we do not just taking buildings but like also showing developers and security companies and whoever else is actually helping them that you know there are people willing to, to stand up against them because you know they broke into the building with bolt cutters uh demanding people leave and so on and you know very soon after we went to them and, and that stopped and there was no security company uh hired for that building from that point on you know so it, it does show that you can fight back against against these people and especially you know security companies a lot of them they're directly involved in evictions. Um, they guard these derelict properties to make sure nobody can use them. So they are a key factor of the housing crisis and like they're, they're the frontline soldiers essentially of landlords in Ireland. Yeah, and then there's the other kind of murkier territory of you know, people getting that aren't official security companies but are just getting hired out. You know, just a few... Thugs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hired thugs, essentially no accountability and we don't know really where they come from. Um, where developers get a hold of them. Um, as we had the one experience out in Clondalkin um, doing eviction support for a bunch of, I think it was 50, mm. 50 um, migrants that were being housed in offices essentially to work on the sites of the developer right next door. And that, that, that turned violent. You know, they, they, they showed up like there was three of us and then they showed up at about 15 or so uh, private security, or not, not even private security, just thugs. Yeah. And that's the thing is you have to wonder how much are these people being paid to carry out this work who aren't professionals. I mean, the state has brought in these laws supposedly restricting who can be involved in evictions, but it doesn't seem to matter whatsoever. You can see that recently in Waterford. Uh, you know, the eviction that happened in Waterford last month, uh, those were just mates of the landlord, as far as we can tell, you know, including the landlord's son-in-law who were evicting a couple from, what, from their home in Waterford illegally. You know, so there are a lot of thugs that are out there that they, people can hire and there's obviously no accountability. You can't doorstep them in the same way that you can uh, a security company. And even those murkier thugs, they tie back into the guards as well because you know there was that thing with the you know there was that broke in the newspaper about a uh, guard you know which since i don't know where the article's gone it's been it quickly edited yeah quickly edited um you know a guard essentially referring the services of this unofficial you know like squad of thugs that would you know come and evict a landlord or come and evict for a landlord uh, if the legal route was too was too uh 
you know, just too inconvenient for them. Yeah, and I think that the fact that they did edit that article, I believe it was the Irish Times, it goes back to that thing we talked about with the Ukrainian refugees. You know, the media is so compliant when it comes to landlords and the housing crisis. They're very willing to censor anything that they see as inconvenient. And uh, we've seen that over and over again in terms of how they've covered us. You know, after Anushan Houston was evicted by the guards, uh, a member, two members of ours actually went on a radio show. I believe it was the Niall Boylan show. And, uh, you know, I don't think it was Niall Boylan himself. It was someone filling in for him, but a very similar shock jock type person. And uh, he, he was comparing, he was like, he's saying, you know, oh, you can't take over an empty building. That's like... Uh, <laughs> That's like, you know, Putin invading Ukraine. You're like the Ukraine. Russians, you're like the Russians uh, going into Ukraine. Yeah, and, then, uh, and, you know, there was, these there was, comparisons that don't make any sense, but... There was people living in Ukraine when the <laughs> Russians came, you know, there was nobody living in these buildings. <laughs> you know, yes. so, you know, we get these, you get these ridiculous things with the media all the time when it comes to housing activism, because they're just so relentlessly hostile, so pro-establishment, mm -hmm. and so, pro, um, you know, pro-landlord, pro essentially. So, um, you know, and that, that's a good example of that. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's it's essentially all of that moralistic line of you can't do that. That's like that's, that's somebody's stuff. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some, that's the thing. It's like you know, sometimes it takes landlords weeks to notice that someone's taken over their building because it just doesn't matter to them. This place is, these places are going to be there for decades in their own minds. You know, whatever plans they put out publicly, um, they're just waiting for the price to go up so they can sell it off, or they're going to bulldoze it and build something else, or whatever else. You know, so they don't even notice because they just have so many. You know, a lot of these vulture funds and landlords, they have hundreds of properties around Ireland. They don't even notice when one of these is taken over. But, you know, that's that something else the media does is they use this highly emotive language to try to undermine these efforts, you know, by comparing it to taking some, some grandmother's home. You know, it's like you're kicking, kicking a granny out to steal her home or whatever while she's on vacation, which is not something we have ever done. You know, we always research carefully what buildings were taken, always make sure that it's an organization or a, a vulture fund or a land, major developer or landlord that we're taking it off of, you know. Um, but they use this language, it's all, it's all part of manipulation to try to turn people against direct action, you know. So the, the, the most recent acquisition, which was uh, on Berkeley Road in Fibsborough, there's loads to talk about there, obviously there's the, the the companies that owned the building, I know they were a shady shady crowd, I know they were approved housing body. Um, the whole situation surrounding it with people rough sleeping at the IPO and then there's also the huge state response to it like the, I, I don't think I've ever seen an eviction like that for a, for an occupied building, for, for a squatted building or whatever, like the, 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 the scale of the operation was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, and there wasn't a peep about that in the media either, so there's loads to, to get stuck into there. I guess maybe it, it's worth talking about why, why the, that, that one was kind of seemed like more of a, an emergency response, like, okay, there's something happening, we have to do something about it. Um, in relation to the, the rough steepers, do you want to talk about that a bit first? And then? Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, so, I mean, you, know, you had hundreds of asylum seekers who were on the street because the, the state was just completely failing and its responsibility to house people. Um, you know, people would arrive and just be directly told you have nowhere to go and then just be told to go find somewhere. You know, they wouldn't even be provided with tents. They, they would often have to buy the tents themselves. And you know, and this they were, obviously it's very vulnerable being on the street and especially with the far right wrapping up the tax on asylum seekers and migrants, uh, they became a target, you know, and we saw that most with Sandwich Street. So, you know, we, t we took uh, people who'd been staying at Sandwich Street directly out of that situation. Um, the, the day of, the, of the, the camp was burned, you know, before the camp was burned uh, and brought them to the first, you know, we had been told about the building, we had talked to squatter 
and things who, who helped us out with that. So we took that building and that, that was where we started. So the, only a few people had been staying at Sandwich Street, but after that, you know, we got in touch with people at the IPO uh, who were staying there as well, because they had also been getting harassed and coming under attack and brought them over as well. So, you know, at, at its peak, I, I believe there was over 60 people staying in Berkeley Road, because this is a building that is, it's 21 apartments. It used to be for the elderly. Um, Kauru is the approved housing body that used to own the place, and they fell into disgrace because their CEO, he moved, he moved all the elderly people out, so you know, they, moved, they were moved somewhere else. They were paying about two sixty a month, I think. Yes. And uh, he, moved his own, he moved himself in, his family in, his friends in, and then he started renting out to students uh, for quadruple the price, yeah, I believe. 850 a month or something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So eventually that came out and he had to resign in disgrace. Then it turned out you know, he had never signed a contract to CEO. Um, you know, he was being paid and no one even knew how much he was being paid because he had never signed a contract. So obviously that was a big disgrace, he had to resign. And the building remained empty in the meantime because there was a dispute with Dublin City Council about the land underneath. You know, and now they're saying that they're going to bulldoze it. They're going to bulldoze it and build another one. But you know, again, this idea that you need to bulldoze and build a better building and all this. This is a perfectly fine building, it's 21 apartments with two bedrooms each. Uh, fully, you know, very fully furnished, many of them, you know, they were fully stocked kitchens, uh, you know, that some of them had beds and so on. Um, so the idea that, you know, in the middle of a housing emergency, that you, an artificially created housing emergency on top of that, that you would just bulldoze this and build a new building in a couple of years, it doesn't make any sense to us. I'm wondering what's your perspective on why was the response to that one in particular so much bigger than the other ones? Because I mean, they all ultimately ended the same way. The company gets an injunction, just they get the court order, they get the cops in. But this one seems, from my perspective anyway, like a, like a good few orders of magnitude bigger than the other ones. You know, they blocked off a major, mm. major road in the city centre, yeah. helicopters, and large number of police. So why, why, what was it about that one in particular that that? that kind of response I was just going to say especially considering that they you know we you know collectively bargained for everyone to be to be housed that all the asylum seekers that were there so they knew that there wasn't as many you know they were all gone and they knew that so it wasn't like you know they could um, operate under the idea that there's you know 50 people in this house that all yeah. needs to be evicted at the same time yeah I, I think it's really I think Every, every time we've almost seen a bit of an escalation from the state in terms of how they treat these things. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's really about sending a message more than anything else of like, you need, you need to stop doing this. You know, because it's very costly to them, obviously, and very embarrassing every time. You know, especially this time, because you know, we were on the roof when they came in and uh, there was a standoff of six hours uh, while they tried to get us down from the roof, which ultimately ended them cutting through the skylight uh, and getting onto the roof and arresting people uh, to bring them to the high court. You know, so I really think it's about sending a message uh, to prevent these actions in in future. You know, they they feel like if they throw more and more resources at this, eventually people will be scared off from from doing it. But you know, but they've done it. It's happened three times now that there was a major major eviction from the state against these buildings, and, and it hasn't deterred us. So I, it's a failing strategy in my view. But I do believe that is their thinking is that they can just throw as many resources as they can, as many guards as they can against this, and that will be enough to to dissuade us. You know, uh, and really. I, we haven't got any figures, exact figures this time, but I, I would say well in excess of 100 guards there. You know, there was a helicopter multiple times. 25 vehicles. Yeah, and there, you know, had the riot shields, uh, you know, the, the, you had the emergency response unit who are usually used for counter-terror mm -hmm. operations. Uh, they sent in a trained negotiator to speak to the activists on the roof, uh, you know, trying to entice them down uh, with offers and food and things like that. So, you know, they really pulled out all the stops with this one. And I think, 
that that that's it's a humiliation for the state every single time that they have to do that and you know they try to they try to cover it up and they try to do their best like the media didn't cover it this time um but you know people still know that this happened you know it's hard to miss a helicopter over Fibsborough for hours on end you know people people know what was happening and you know it's again very notable that when they took people to court after being arrested um the whole the whole court sitting lasted maybe five minutes and this time the guards didn't go on the stand and have to explain why they actually took these actions, you know, which is in sharp contrast in the past where they were called up by the judge and had to give evidence and all this. And over and over again, we see again, when, they, when the activists are brought to court and, you know, they're, you know, in the court because it's a civil matter and so on, the charge is actually contempt of court by not, for not following a court order. And they say, um, you know, will you abide by this court order? Will you say that you won't go back into this building? Yes or no? Um, we always say no. And in that case, legally, they have the right to imprison, our, uh, imprison us. And they never have. You know, because over and over again, they don't want to create a scene. They don't want news. I, th I think you can see in sharp contrast to how they treat cases like Enoch Burke, mm. where they keep arresting him, media keeps give, giving him constant coverage. Um, here, they really want to avoid coverage. You know, they don't, they don't want people uh, hearing about what we're doing, I think, I think is the simple fact, you know. Yeah, no, it's a lot better to keep people talking about fucking clowns like that lad. Mm -hmm. like, okay, he's making some kind of political statement, but he, he's not part of a movement, he's just one gobshite. Yeah, you know I mean? so it's like, a lunatic, yeah. Good for business as well, you know, they're all paying for legal support. Uh, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose the ultimate punchline to that fucking McSweeney House is, I've read since that the, the council have essentially given that land to Kauru because the, what held up the construction of it, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is the, they couldn't demolish, Kauru couldn't demolish it and build on it because it wasn't theirs. So the solution to that then was for the state to just give it to them. So like they, they, they took land that was mismanaged by a company that like betrayed their mandate of public service completely mm. through really ridiculously almost comical levels of corruption and then a group a totally voluntary group runs it better than they ever did for a few months and that's like like that's what you were talking about earlier it's like a different a completely different moral and ethical orientation it's just one happens to sync up with the law the other. i actually think it's worth noting as well that you know the votes to actually hand back that land by Dublin City Council was the day of the eviction. You know, it was you know it was just a few hours before. And again, you have to wonder was it, was this the strong for the, you know the police invasion that was sent against the building was that all about expediting the process so that this approved housing body could get on with what they were doing, despite the pr the proven track record of corruption and you know misusing the, misusing the, the allocations of funds and all this, you know. And so you really have to wonder about the timing of that of the vote in Dublin City Council that day. Yeah. We should probably wrap up soon, but um, the next question was going to be what's currently going on, what are, what are the active campaigns mm. ongoing, and what are kind of the short-term goals, but you could maybe talk about the previous events during that now. Oh, sure, yeah, so, so after, after Berkeley Road, uh, we decided that we wanted to expand the organization, you know, go on a recruitment drive and, and, and bring people in, because uh, RHL is always is mostly a, a small core of people doing a lot of the work. Uh, you know, we want to turn it into a genuinely, like a genuine mass housing organization in the future, you know. So, uh, and particularly at the moment, you know, because it's, you know, we're just coming into the beginning of the uh, college year, we focus a lot on building a student campaign. So we've been building a branch in Trinity. We've been talking to people in IADT and NCAD uh, about building a, a student, student branches of the RHL, you know, because we see how the accommodation crisis is affecting students. You know, a lot of students 
uh, they can't even go to college anymore because they just can't find accommodation or they're having to commute four hours, uh, you know, from, from Don people traveling from Donegal even or Galway to, to come to college in Dublin and things because they're stuck in the family home. Uh, so that's a major focus of ours at the moment is building that student campaign. You know, so we really think it's important that, you know, what we do want to build with students and things, we also want to be in communities and building up people's confidence and, you know, using them as community spaces because there's, as well as housing being a huge issue, there's not enough, a lot of community spaces in Dublin are being closed down. They've been bulldozed and replaced with hotels. So that's a really important aspect as well, you know, not just the fact of uh, providing housing, but also cultural and community spaces and getting people in their communities empowered and feeling like they can get involved in these sorts of projects. So and you used events previously in some of the previous acquisitions? Yeah, no, you know, we ha we've had, especially on Sean Houston, it was a perfect venue for that because it was a wide open space, you know, in a factory. So we had fundraising gigs there. Um, so you know, providing that alternative community space is really important as well. It's also just about make, making politics not so, not so dry and, you know, not so dreary. Like the, the cultural aspect is really important to us. And that's why we place so much emphasis as well on murals. You know, we paint a lot of murals in the buildings and graffiti and things like that, uh, especially of like revolutionary figures from Irish history, you know, because we think it's, it's really important to keep that link and show like how we can be inspired by those figures throughout Irish history that uh, we're involved in housing activism, we're involved in revolution and socialism and all these things that we, that we want to talk about, you know. Yeah, now it's very important that it's, 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 it's seen as part of a continuous tradition and a continuous tendency of like people liberating themselves and, and asserting their own agency is not just this disembodied thing that comes from this situation it's a fight that's been ongoing yeah and you know i mean the, the biggest comparison for us would be the land war you know in the late 19th century where you know they through mass movements tenants unions for like direct action republicans socialists you know all sorts of people coming together in a united front against landlordism in ireland you know they really broke they managed to destroy uh, the feudal landlord system in ireland to a great extent uh, and that's something that we think really needs to be replicated now with the, with the housing crisis, you know. Uh, there needs to be a united front against the housing crisis in terms of really breaking the back of, of modern landlordism in terms of how it's done. And that's going to take all kinds of tactics. You know, we don't claim the RHL is the, is the only way in terms of how things we've done. It's an important aspect we think is, we think direct action is the most important aspect, obviously. But, you know, the united front in terms of how we approach that is really, is really important as well uh, in terms of building that up. Sound. So on that note, what are the next steps for the RHL and how could anybody listening who's interested get involved? Uh, so the next steps is we're definitely, we're, very soon we will be doing more occupations, in particular student occupations against the housing crisis. Uh, you know, we're always on the lookout for more buildings. And so, the, you know, and walk down any street in Dublin and there'll be, there'll be no, uh, you know, there's, there's no lack of buildings to choose from. You know, and as well, you know, RHL exists outside of Dublin as well. We're mostly speaking from a Dublin perspective because that's what we know. But, you know, there is a branch in Galway, a branch in Waterford, uh, and, play, you know, activists around the country as well who are, who are also fighting against the housing crisis and looking to build to, uh, to occupations and things like that. And we really want to build not just in Dublin, but obviously but across the whole country and across all 32 counties in terms of fighting against the housing crisis. So that's, that's what we're working on at the moment. Um, but in the short term, uh, student, student campaign is, is what we're, we're focusing on. Uh, and if people want to contact us, uh, we're on Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, we have a Facebook, and uh, join RHL at protemmail.com is our email if, you want to, if you're interested in getting involved. Right, so that's it for this month, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for taking the time to learn about these campaigns. But remember, knowledge is great, but it's worth nothing if you don't do anything with it. So get out there, get stuck in. Join the RHL, join CATU, join an organisation that's fighting back. 
So thanks for listening. And if you've got any suggestions, any campaigns that you'd like to hear from on the show, feel free to send a request or a recommendation to turningearthradio at gmail.com. And remember, if you're not subscribed on Patreon already and you can afford to, please do. It's a big help. And if you want to stay in touch with the show, stay on top of things, you can find links to our social media at linktree.com forward slash turningearth. Slangerful.